Hello friends, welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Dimity Editor Micah Utrecht. One of the best books that I have read this year is uh, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s by Mike Davis and John Wiener. It's a chronicle of all of the upsurges of the 60s and early 70s uh, in Los Angeles. Everything from the anti-war movement to the civil rights movement to the feminist movement uh, to stuff you don't normally hear about uh, when talking about the 60s like the teeny bopper riots on the Sunset Strip in L.A. It's this uh, giant tapestry of a city in upheaval at a time of upheaval. And at a time when things are pretty bleak, you know, I read this book over the summer at the height of the protests against the murder of George Floyd. And reading this book doesn't make you feel like contemporary history is going to have a happy ending by any stretch of the imagination. But it does, strangely, give you a sense of hope and of optimism. I mean, not because every battle that is being fought by the left today is going to be successful. Certainly not because the majority of the battles fought in the 60s in L.A. or anywhere else were successful because they weren't. Uh, But because there is a long tradition going back decades and centuries of uh, average people being able to rise up and to be able to fight against the forces of oppression and exploitation that run our society. And reading Set the Night on Fire, you feel like you're a part of those currents. Uh, And you get the strange sense, uh, even despite defeat after defeat after defeat, uh, that we might actually be able to wring some victories out once in a while and make the world a more humane and just and pleasant place to live. So I can't recommend this book enough, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s, published by Verso Books earlier this year. Here's my conversation with John Wiener. John is a contributing editor at The Nation magazine. He's host and producer of their excellent podcast, Start Making Sense. He's an emeritus professor of U.S. history at the University of California at Irvine, and has written a number of books, including Give Me Some Truth, The John Lennon FBI Files, and How We Forgot the Cold War. Here's my conversation with John. So, John, I'm I'm a young guy. I'm I'm 32, but I've been around long enough. Or when I see a book that looks like this, even though I am an author myself and I all I do is edit words all day, I usually know to run for the hills because my my eyes are usually bigger than my reading stomach when it comes to a, a book this size. Uh, but I have to say that the book uh, really the the, the pages uh, just flew by. I did not I did not at any time feel as I was reading this book that I that I was going, you know, slogging through an 800-page tome. So I have to thank you first and foremost for that. Let me say Let's not exaggerate here. There are 800 pages, but only 640 pages of text. So, you know, the rest is footnotes and index and back matter. Well, it's true. I was trying to I was trying to hype you up. I was it's, it's something more impressive to say that you wrote an 800 page book. Okay. Um, so this this book is uh it's it's full of just these incredible uh, details from Los Angeles and the 1960s in details that feel incredibly relevant to our own time in, in many places, which we can get into in uh, the discussion. Um, I just first uh, asked you, I, I read an interview recently from, I believe, the journal, was it Radical History, where you 
uh, were interviewing Mike Davis, and you were asking him about a uh, uh, the book he was working on on terrorism. But he mentioned, and I think that it was over a decade ago, he said, uh, "Well, my my day job right now is I'm I'm working on a history of L.A. in the 1960s." Uh, but then he went down to talk about this other book. So uh, how did, how did you go from uh, you know interviewing Mike Davis about writing this book to now you you, you both wrote it together? First of all, let me say this is a Mike Davis book. As you say, Mike has been talking about a book on L.A. in the 60s for more than a decade. And I was one of the many people who was waiting to read this book. Um, but uh, he wrote one essay about L.A. in the 60s. It's in this book. It's the chapter on the Sunset Strip riots. It was published in a journal not quite as well known as Jacobin, a Canadian bilingual labor history journal called Labor Travail. Maybe you're a subscriber. Well, I have to say, if you if you studied labor history in Quebec as I did, then you are familiar with this. But beyond that, you might. Not. You are the first. Done many interviews. You are the first to to know that this journal really exists, and it's quite a good journal, but not one well known, you know, to people who read books in the United States. Anyway, Mike published one essay there that might have, might, might have been more than a decade ago. Uh, and then he wrote a lot of other books in the meantime. And uh, about five years ago, he emailed me and he said uh, he had too many projects going and he really wanted to be able to finish this project, which he had outlined, on L.A. in the 60s, and would I co-author it with him to help him get it done, since he was also going to write two or three other books? And I said, sure. So uh, he had already kind of sketched out the backbone of the book, which is the kind of narrative of black and Latino organizing and struggle from 1960 to a little after 1970, uh, but the sort of open part was everything else, the anti-war movement, the women's liberation movement, the gay liberation movement, the counterculture, uh, the free clinic. Um, so I got everything else, uh, which sort of swirls or these other movements that kind of swirl around, learn from uh, and follow on the footsteps of his narrative of a black and Latino organizing. And then we traded chapters back and forth, read each other's chapters. I must say, fortunately, he did more rewriting of my chapters than I did of his chapters. Uh, but that's that's how it happened. Well, there's no Communist Manifesto without both Marx and Engels. So there's no, 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 no shame there. So you, you have in the book this, this thread that is running throughout almost every single chapter in the book and that is particularly relevant for us in 2020, which is the role of the Los Angeles Police Department in uh, really vicious attempts to disrupt and destroy and brutalize all of these different people who are all these different groups, all these different movements that are part of this tapestry that is the sixth season in LA. So um, can you talk about the LA PD, what they were up to and, and, uh, I think you say somewhere in the book that they sort of um, brought all of these disparate groups together in a way and that they had this shared uh, experience of repression from the LAPD. I mean, was was that felt by people on the ground in L.A. at the time? Did they get the, have this sort of sense of common cause that was that was a product of their repression by the police? 
Well, you know, there's some some things everyone expected. The LAPD had been a racist institution really since its founding. It was committed to enforcing segregation, keeping black people in South Central LA. Um, it, of course, was committed to raiding gay bars and repressing gay life wherever they could find it. Um, of course, they were against street demonstrations by the anti-war movement. They'd had a red squad that went back to the 30s. Um, <clears throat> the more surprising thing to me, I hadn't quite realized that they even went after the women's movement. L.A., uh, the movement, women's movement in, in L.A. was one of the pioneers of women's self-help health clinics. This started in Boston. Uh, with Our Bodies Ourselves, the Our Bodies Ourselves group. But L.A. had one of the first street clinics run by the Women's Liberation Movement for women. They were uh, raided by the LAPD. The uh, Two people were arrested and charged with uh, practicing medicine without a license. Um, and Carol Downer was put on trial. It was a big show trial uh, that the feminist movement of the circa 1970 um, made into a national event. Um, the the evidence again. The argument against her was that uh, she had she had suggested yogurt as a treatment for vaginal yeast infections, and this was regarded as a crime for which she should be put in jail. Um, <clears throat> needless to say, the national women's movement didn't see it that way. This they called this the great yogurt conspiracy. They had a jury trial. Uh, she was found not guilty. Um, but that was sort of the LAPD at its kind of most ridiculous. Of course, it was also very violent, indeed very murderous when it came to black L.A., a um, story that was more familiar to everybody, I think. And so do the characters that you that you chronicle in the book do you you think that they had that sense that like we even if we're a part of these different movements the women's movement the uh, civil rights movement etc that we have some kind of shared experience uh, that that kind of br brings us together or no well there's there's two direct connections just to take for example the the um gay liberation movement uh the communist party of la which also kind of looms large in the background of our story uh, dorothy healy the head of the communist party of southern california was a mentor of mike davis i also knew her a very significant wonderful person um but one of the things that she was required to do it was an unorthodox and, and somewhat defiant chapter uh, when it came to national Communist Party politics. But one of the things where they followed the party line was they expelled their gay members uh, in the 50s. The argument was they're vulnerable to blackmail by the authorities. And some of those gay communists were extremely good organizers, and they went on to organize gay, gay organizations. The Manichean Society uh, was organized in Los Angeles by Harry Hay and other ex-communists who'd been expelled from the party. Similarly, the first street demonstrations anywhere in the United States around uh, gay rights defending uh, a gay bar from a police raid was uh, a demonstration at the Black Cat Tavern uh, 
it's on Sunset Boulevard in Silver Lake. Um, and this was two, more than two years before Stonewall, which we usually date as the beginning of public resistance to the police attacks on gay bars. But that demonstration, one of the, one of the slogans of that demonstration was they shared the uh, street, I won't say fighting, because they weren't fighting. They were protesting with picket signs. They shared the hostility. The slogan was End Blue Fascism. And that was also the slogan of the Sunset Strip riots, which were going on at the same time. So here we have gay, organized gay presence um, on one part of Sunset Boulevard, a mile or two to the east. We have uh, kids, teeny boppers, high school kids from the you know, the San Fernando Valley coming in to fight the sheriffs on Sunset Strip, all around the same slogan of stop blue fascism. That's the most direct link we found between different uh, organizations. Um, otherwise, you know, the other, the probably the biggest uh, moment of LAPD acting against white people as opposed to people of color uh, came in Century City in 1967. LBJ came to LA to launch his his reelection campaign. Of course, he ended up withdrawing. But what he got here, he was planning to run, and there was a huge demonstration of more than 10,000 people, mostly white middle class people, bringing their kids and um, at Century City, which was a new luxury real estate development, which it was just under construction. Um, and a thousand LAPD members in riot gear clubbed and beat for an hour outside the Century Plaza Hotel, uh, these white middle-class anti-war demonstrators. So that was another moment of coming together around a much more you know, intense issue. And after that, the west side of LA um, switched to supporting the first black candidate for mayor, Tom Bradley. And, and that's the beginning of the alliance between black and uh, black politics, city politics, Democratic Party politics, and the liberal West Side, uh, largely Jewish communities, which four years later did elect LA's first black mayor, Tom Bradley. I mean, again, this section is the, or this this thread uh, is the one that feels the most resonant to today, obviously, as we're watching, uh, you know, vicious police brutality on the streets in response to the racial justice protests of today. And, and in that teeny boppers section about these very young kids, I mean, I think if I remember correctly, some of them not even yet teenagers who are just hanging out and, and uh, on the strip and they're facing this brutal repression. I mean, they have this stop blue fascism slogan on their signs. I mean, you, you could probably find that exact sign at protests today uh, against police brutality. And it's a real indication of the ferment of the times that that, that same slogan was uh, being held up by uh, kids, by, by children on, on the streets of L.A. Uh, in the 60s. Um, you mentioned Dorothy Healy and the Communist Party, which I wanted to talk a bit about, because um, the, the, the Communist Party in Southern California, as you, as you hinted at, uh, was, seemed like it was very distinct from the Communist Party throughout the rest of the uh, country uh, at that time and, and then later on, too. Um, 
And uh, how much of that was related to this unique uh, character of Dorothy Healy and uh, the the unique kind of leadership that she had in 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 the party and her willingness to buck the dictates of Moscow in ways that uh, other Communist Party leaders uh, either uh, were unwilling or unable to do. I think she gets a lot of the credit, probably most of the credit for this. She was determined. Uh, in the 50s, that the Communist Party should re, should maintain a public presence. They should not go underground. The, uh, the line was that McCarthyism was a new kind of fascism, Hitler movement, and that the Communist Party was going to have to go underground to survive. Dorothy disagreed with that. In fact, she ran for for county tax assessor in Los Angeles in 1964 and got 80,000 votes the, the head of the Communist Party running as the county tax assessor. Completely remarkable thing. I mean, she was also put on trial in the Smith Act trials, along with the other leaders of the Communist Party of Southern California and New York and other places. And, you know, that was a long, exhausting uh, uh, legal battle. But she wanted to maintain the popular front of the 40s. She wanted to maintain ties between the, the communists, the, the non-communist left and liberals. And she did pretty well at that, despite the fact that, uh, you know, McCarthyism was raging. And then the aftermath of McCarthyism in the, the uh, early 60s was still, a, you know, a very scary time for communists. And especially in Los Angeles, the Hollywood blacklist was being enforced pretty uh, strictly. Uh, so she always insisted the left has to be out there all the time. The communists should work with the socialists and, and the liberals. And uh, that explains a lot, of, um, a lot of the vitality, I think, uh, of the movement in Southern California that we write about. And in, according to other histories of this period that I've read, the, um, the turn underground, the turn away from a lot of those popular fronts sort of uh, uh, open and uh, the, the open, just the continued sort of public campaigning as as a communist party, uh, especially at the time when McCarthyism was sort of at its height and the sort of uh, refusal to, uh, you know, the, the, the rest of the communist party basically is a strategy for dealing with McCarthyism. Actually, in hindsight, really dealt them a serious blow, but because the, the CP of Southern California didn't take that same Route they actually uh, maintained a, a vibrancy and a strong membership right for a very long time in a way that most of the other communist parties around the country didn't. Yeah, and one of the other keys was that Dorothy was very committed to making this an interracial group of organizers, uh, also diver uh, diverging from the national party line. Uh, Southern California had a a separate caucus of people of color, the Chela Mumba Caucus, um, and had a lot of some very remarkable and talented organizers. We're now in the mid and late 60s. And one of the members of that caucus uh, was a PhD graduate student of Herbert Marcuse at UC San Diego, who got a job teaching at UCLA. Uh, and her name was Angela Davis. She hadn't intended to become the most famous radical of the 60s, but she was outed as a party member shortly after her appointment was announced in August of 1969. Um, the regents, of course, 
regents of the university, of course, fired her. And of course, you can't do that anymore in 1969. So the faculty rose up to defend her. And uh, Dorothy Healy was the mentor of Angela Davis. Uh, so there was a whole year of fighting to defend Angela around her job, which was a great example of an alliance with liberals, because, of course, liberals don't think you should be fired from uh, the university because of your political ideas. Um, then, then Angela was indicted because she had bought and licensed the guns that were used in a courthouse shootout in Marin County by a young uh, Black Panther. She had had nothing to do with this. Of course, she would have opposed it if anybody had told her that's what they were thinking of doing. But then the Communist Party of Southern California launched the biggest defense campaign of the 60s, which was the Free Angela Davis campaign, which ended up with her being completely exonerated of all the charges against her. Uh, so L.A. also, largely because of Dorothy Healy and because of the inadvertent way that Angela Davis became a, a, a celebrity of the left, um, L.A. is also an example of, of a, a, a interracial, you know, multicultural uh, political action groups. Yeah, this is going to be my next question, which is that when you read that history and how Dorothy Healy's unique uh, uh, politics and, and strategy that she successfully carried out with the party, and then you see how it led to things like uh, Angela Davis's membership and everything that you know came along with Angela, the rest of Angela Davis's life, you have to w wonder about potential alternative histories here in which if other communist party chapters around the country had taken a similar strategy if if things had if things, if things would have worked out differently for some of those uh, local chapters of the party and who knows how how many other uh, you know bright talented young civil rights activists like Angela Davis would have uh, done would have found the communist party uh, as a, an organizing home for them and who knows what could have come out of all of that yeah, and Angela, you know, Angela was very open. She and Dorothy agreed. She wasn't going to deny her party membership. If you remember during the, the um, HUAC-Hollywood uh, hearings and throughout the blacklist period, Communist Party members refused to acknowledge that they were party members, and instead they pled the fifth or they pled the first. Uh, they said it's none of your business and we have a right to whatever our beliefs are. Angela was part of the new wave of, of leftists who a actively affirmed that she was a communist, that she was against you know capitalism. She wanted an interracial alliance of the working class, uh, and that's you know that's part of the story of how the radicalism that was what part of what was new about the new left. But in L.A., it had very strong ties to this unique strand of the old left in the Latino community, for example, in East L.A what became the Chicano community, there were uh, a generation or two of communists and, and radicals, many of whom had connections to Mexico and the Mexican Communist Party and the other radical parties in Mexico. And this was, um, so we didn't know much about that in the 60s, but you know, by the time the Chicano moratorium came along in 1969, 1970, 50 years ago, uh, we started to learn that, yeah, there's a long-standing radical tradition in East L.A. among Chicano, Me Mexican-American socialists, multi-generational in many, in many cases. Um, nobody as famous as Angela Davis, of course, uh, but uh, 
but very much an important part of understanding that part of the radical history of L.A. That seems to be true wherever you dig into Latino history. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, uh, Frank Bardicke's book, Trampling Out the Vintage, where he talks about how within the United Farm Workers, there is a sim- similar, uh, you know, you scratch the surface and you find out that there were that that long tradition of uh, especially Mexican radicalism. That, that uh, It wasn't just Cesar Chavez. It was, you know, rank and file members who had this whole long history with radical politics. And how many pages was Frank Bardicke's book? <laughs> I, think, I think his book was the last one of that length that I read before yours. That was a while. And both very well worth it, I have to say. Uh, so, uh, you know, we were talking about communism here. And, of course, uh, with communism comes its uh, its inverse, the anti-communism. And, and looking through my notes on your, on the book, I realized that sort of I'd almost just as the LAPD shows up to repress every movement that you're chronicling in the book, so too do these accusations of uh, uh, these sort of red scare type accusations come up uh, against basically every movement that's that's kicking off. So talk a little bit about the role of anti-communism in LA in the '60s. I mentioned that the LAPD had a had a notorious red squad going back to the '30s. Um, the power structure of L.A., uh, led by the L.A. Times and uh, the Catholic Church, uh, was militantly anti-labor. Of course, by the 40s, the CIO was a, a strong and militant presence in Southern California. The auto workers, the, uh, the, the rubber workers were very uh, big here. Of course, the longshoremen in, in the port of San Pedro uh, were, were very important. Um, the aerospace industry was based here during World War II. So this was a big site of labor, you know, conflict in which the LAPD set out, you know, to do everything it could to, you know, break up picket lines, arrest activists. You know, it was it's the national story that the civil rights movement was said to be directed by Moscow. And, of course, that was pretty ridiculous. Um, and... Same sort of thing happened in, in L.A. Um, I think my favorite example of how all this came down was a fairly small story about radio station KPFK, one of the first public-supported, independent, non-commercial radio stations following on KPFA in Berkeley. Their original conception was you know, classical music, over the high quality of FM radio combined with high-minded public affairs. So, you know, hour-long lectures by Harvard professors like David Reisman and John Kenneth Galbraith. And they wanted to be committed to, they they said they were committed to balance. So they had conservatives, they had leftists, they had centrists, and they invited Dorothy Healy, the most famous leftist in Southern California, and she did a program called Communist Commentary starting in, in the late 50s. Now, this is pretty unusual in America in 1959 to have a show called Communist Commentary. And the conservatives and the liberals on KPFK refused to be on a radio station that had a show called Communist Commentary. I mean, in this case, this, this was red baiting, but they were right that Dorothy Healy was a communist. I mean, Martin Luther King was not a communist, you know, uh, and uh, they all quit. They wouldn't do it. And, and then the federal government, the the FCC held hearings to deny KPFK its license. HUAC investigated communist infiltration of radio in 
you know, it was kind of a spin-off of, of the Hollywood uh, blacklist uh, hearings. Um, Dorothy was subpoenaed, uh, and uh, KPFK then sort of by default became the left-wing radio station because of this red-baiting of Dorothy, uh, of Dorothy Healy. Of course, they kept their license. Uh, HUAC uh, eventually gave up. There wasn't, they accomplished what they wanted to do, which was get some headlines for a while. Uh, but KPFK at that point then reformulated his concept of balance. And instead of having a balance between all positions on KPFK, KPFK now decided it would provide the balance that was missing from the mainstream and right-wing media. And that's what Pacifica Radio has remained to this day. Well, just, just like us at Jacobin, we're just trying to balance out the, uh, the ideological landscape. It's all we want, balance. We don't want, we don't want anything more, more than balance, yes. Balance has got to be good. So your book, much like a lot of histories of the 60s, uh, organized labor doesn't show up a ton, uh, except occasionally to talk about why, how they were doing things wrong. So, uh, which, uh, that, I mean, that's, that's a bit of an overstatement. Uh, but, uh, just talk about the absence of, uh, organized labor in LA from the ferment of the sixties, why that happened and, and maybe, uh, some of the impact, if you have any thoughts on that. Well, of course, the CIO had been purged of its communists and a lot of its leftists by, by the sixties. So, uh, this was no longer, uh, although although the unions were integrated in many cases, and the the auto workers were strong liberal organization. The the uh, of course the Longshore Union was militant uh, and often red baited, uh, but they were not part of the organized civil rights movement. They were not part of. They certainly didn't support the black radicalism of the late 60s. Right. And you, you say in the first chapter something that really can't be stated enough, especially for young people trying to get our heads around this history, that uh, it, it isn't that like the labor movement was sort of uh, somehow fundamentally racist uh, at all times. It was that the the labor movement after McCarthyism had been purged of its most stalwart anti-racist elements. Uh, you know, that tradition of uh, anti-racist unionism, which was tied up in this larger tradition of left unionism, had largely been smashed thanks to McCarthyism. One of our biggest regrets of the things we didn't put into our so-called 800-page book because people told us we had to stop, we really should have had a chapter on the Teamsters Wildcat strike of, of about, what, 1971, 72. Uh, there was a lot of ferment inside unions because, you know, the younger members felt, you know, much of the generational ferment that was going on in the rest of the culture. Um, and a lot of these unions had become more bureaucratic and more institutionalized and, uh, there was a very important Teamsters Wildcat strike. Mike was a big part of it. I remember, you know, having to get up at the crack of dawn with Bob Brenner and going out to pick at some, you know, godforsaken trucking yard in East L.A. where us UCLA people never would have gone if it weren't for the, the Teamsters Wildcat strike. Um, so there was a certain amount of ferment um, but it was not at the center of what was going on, and we didn't write about it in our book. I'm sorry to say. Well, I'll I'll just mention that uh, that'll have to be my task because my next book is a oral history collection of 
uh, new leftists who industrialized uh, after the sort of new left period. So uh, right. th- th- this task falls on the uh, on the younger generation <laughs> here. Uh, so one of the things that you say in the very beginning of the book that uh, you set out to kind of do a, a corrective on of, of this history, or at least tell the story of, of uh, LA's uh, history on this being different, which is the the kind of students that were at the central center of this kind of ferment. I mean, usually the story that's told is about Berkeley and Michigan and Columbia and these kind of elite public and private higher education institutions. Uh, but you all take uh, a lot of time to talk about this ferment that was happening in, in community colleges and, and uh, you know, commuter schools, as well as uh, high schools and even middle schools. So uh, beyond just sort of wanting to set the historical record straight on, on who, what kind of students were uh, central to the organizing in LA in that time. What what is the uh, importance of of telling that uh, history of these uh, students who are from decidedly non elite institutions and putting them at the center of student organizing in the sixties? Well, there's two very distinct arenas of this. One is the high school blowouts in first in East LA of uh, Chicano students, and then in South LA by black students. Uh, These are high school students who are demanding better schools. They want better teachers. They want smaller classes. They want the blacks organized for integration. East LA, integration is not a demand. They're more kind of community control oriented. They want bilingual education. They want, um, uh, they want Chicano studies and Chicano history. Um, and, and this is a movement pretty much of kids, of high school kids and even of junior high school kids with some connections to the local community college, uh, in uh, new community college in East LA. So this is a very straight, and, th- and then they sort of get their parents involved in this. I mean, of course there was a big teacher strike in LA, what, last year, um, amazingly, maybe not so amazingly, the issues had not changed very much. Smaller class size, more counselors. Um, the big difference between then and now was then the teachers were against the kids. Uh, the teachers were calling the cops on the kids. The teachers wanted to kick out the kids who were the activists. In this teacher strike, the, the students, their families, and the teachers were all on the same picket line. So this is a great example of how uh, things have gotten a lot better in the last 50 years in Los Angeles. But that was an organization led by high school kids, amazingly. Then colleges, we always think, as you say, we think of colleges as the center of the anti-war movement. Um, L.A. did have the, uh, the campus with the largest number of felony indictments uh, anywhere in the United States, uh, but it was not UCLA, and God knows it was not USC. It was this little place called Valley State, a new state college out in the western San Fernando Valley. Today it's called Cal State Northridge. Um, they had an SDS chapter with some connections to Dorothy Healy, I must say, with some talented organizers, and they had a small black, black um, students' union Pretty amazing since black people were not allowed to live in the western San Fernando Valley, but there were, you know, a few dozen black students who were kind of 
standard black students militants of the of the late 60s and uh, through a series of again kind of unintended escalations by the uh, by the authorities this became one of the biggest the, the biggest student movement in southern california that combined a demand for black studies and chicano studies with the anti-war movement so sds was united with the bsu and the and mecha um, 1,730 felony charges were brought by the District Attorney of Los Angeles against two dozen uh, activists of the Black Students Union. Um, nothing like that happened anywhere else in the United States. Uh, so it's sort of testimony to the, to the intensity of repression here uh, uh, as well. Um, they were, you know, they were red-baited. They were... They were, became, Angela Davis went out there and Tom Hayden went out there and Jane Fonda went out there. There was a, and it was really the middle of nowhere. It's still kind of the middle of nowhere. Don't, maybe I shouldn't say this, but it's, it's uh, not the, it, not the kind of place that the conventional wisdom would expect you to find uh, a big and militant uh, student movement, especially of black and Chicano kids now the majority of the things of the of the movements that you chronicle in the book uh they they you know there's some victories there but there's a lot of defeats yeah but reading the book i am not i i i you know if you look at the balance sheet and you you determine that there are more defeats than there were victories that's not the 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 feeling that you get just from reading the book i mean reading the book you get a real uh sense of the of the optimism and the hopefulness of the upsurges uh of the period and uh you know you all say in the in the conclusion of the book that uh you know despite there being more defeats than victories i mean these these struggles that you chronicle should fundamentally be seen as a kind of sowing of seeds uh, that some of which have, have now, as you mentioned in the LA teacher strike of last year, for example, come to, to sprout, uh, in really, uh, you know, exciting ways that are totally changing the conversation on things like public education. So, you know, yeah, despite all of these, these defeats, uh, we, you, you can't help but finish this book feeling really hopeful about the future. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. You know, when, when we add up, uh, especially for black LA, Black LA circa 1973 is, if anything, worse off than it was in 1960. The job picture is bleaker because of the deindustrialization. Um, the residential segregation hasn't improved very much. The schools are still terrible. Uh, and East LA, the Chicano world, uh, similarly, you can't really chart a lot of progress. I mean, there's the obvious victories are the ones that we all know about, the gay liberation movement through its more liberal branches gets gay marriage eventually, gay organizations flourish, um, the LA Gay and Lesbian Community Center becomes the largest such organization in the world. Similarly, uh, the women's movement, again, in its less radical liberation uh, form uh, is very successful. Uh, so the radical part of it, the black part of it, do not succeed in the period that we're looking at. 
despite this incredible uh, mobilization, the commitment, the thousands of people who mobilize for year after year. Um, but, you know, I think there are some direct connections. I think that the t I, this is just my guess, but my impression is, for instance, the teachers union today is the consists of the children and the grandchildren of that generation. These are their their grandparents and maybe their parents were part of the protests of that era. So they have grown up. They grew up in a very different world with very different values. Um, and it's, it's changing L.A. Well, the book is Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s by Mike Davis and John Wiener. John, thanks a lot for joining us to talk about it. Totally good. Thanks a lot. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe.